Welcome to Invited In, a podcast connecting the global family of Samaritan's Purse. Today's episode is encouraging and impacting. I had the chance to talk with Dr. Richard and Millie Bransford. Dick and Millie served on the mission field for over 40 years, but they've never stopped serving. They're longtime partners with Samaritan's Purse and have served in so many different capacities, from decades at Kajabe Hospital through World Medical Mission to the earliest disaster assistance response teams. They've truly dedicated their lives to service. This conversation hardly scratched the surface of their ministry, but I hope that you're challenged and bolstered to hear about their dedication to God's call in their lives. When I was about 13, I committed my life to the Lord. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I was in a small Christian Missionary Alliance Church in California. Mm -hmm. And within a year, I had seen missionaries come through and had Mm -hmm. seen what God had done through not only missionaries, but through also medical missionaries. And by the time I was 14, I wanted to be a a doctor. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a missionary, and I wanted to live an effective Christian life. Mm -hmm. And that never failed. I mean, over the next 10 years, the priorities got more in line of what God had in mind, Mm -hmm. but the three things were still goals. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had met, as as she said, on the way to InterVarsity's missionary camp, Mm -hmm. and we were engaged in about three months, and uh, we were married a year after we met. Mm -hmm. So it was was good. And then a year later, as Millie said, we we went on our first trip to Africa. Mm -hmm. I tell people we spent our first anniversary in London. And uh, uh, that always impresses people. And I just tell them it was a, st- a stopover on the plane. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a, a nice thing. And we went to Kajabi, where we eventually spent 35 years. Mm. Uh, worked with in a hospital that most days only had one doctor. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a pleasure. And the doctor, when I left, I, I asked him, I said, I'm interested in obstetrics and gynecology or general surgery, what would you recommend? Hmm. And he said, uh, I think your general surgery would be a better idea and uh, that uh, you can pick up some of the obstetrics on hmm. your own. And so that that's the direction we took. But during that first trip out, we worked amongst a people called the Rendilli. Hmm. And the Rendilli were just a, a couple of weeks in our lives, but they were unreached people group. They hmm. were just... I think less than five Grindili Christians at that time. They were a traditional people. They were uh, herders. They herded camels and goats and sheep. And uh, one, of, one of the stories I should tell, I said, uh, when 35 years later or so, we stopped in a Rindili town and the missionary who was there said, we had had no fruit for all these years and now we have so many people coming to the Lord, we don't have time to disciple them. Wow. And I said, what made the difference? And there was apparently a preschool that had been built hmm. by Samaritan's Purse for them. Hmm. And it was, it was just an answer to their prayers. Hmm. And the women would come and they would learn to read and hear stories and things like that. And that was part of the key things that brought them to the Lord. But we went back in uh, 1966 and finished... Uh, medical school and finished uh, residency. And then when we finished residency, went back for five months and helped out. Then had two-year commitment in the Air Force. Mm. And that was that was a pleasure. 
mm-hmm. was one of our highlights of ministry, I think. It was the Air Force. Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, it was an interesting period of time. When we finally got ready to come back, we thought we were coming back to Kajabi. And somebody said, well, we have two surgeons going there already. So would you consider going to DRC, mm. a very remote place? And uh, we said yes. Then we went there, and about three months later, we were redirected to the Comoro Islands. And the Comoro Islands were essentially 100% Muslim. Mm. Uh, they had gained their independence from France one year earlier. Uh, they had of their thirty-six doctors on the four on the three islands. There were only six left, and so I became the surgeon on our island. So we had about two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand people, and uh, you could hardly refer them off. They were so poor, hmm. and so it was a, it was an interesting endeavor. Uh, uh, we were there for a year and a half, and then the government made a rule that all people who felt they had to share their faiths needed to leave. Mm. And our mission decided to leave at that time. I never forget going to one of our former neighbors and s- saying to him, Mohammed, I think you ought to know we need to leave. And mm. I just want to say I enjoyed your friendship. And he looked back at me and he said, Dick, if you were a good Christian, you wouldn't leave us now. And <laughs> had a little smile on his face, but uh, mm. I, I never have quite gotten over that. Mm. And we went back to Kajabi, not knowing how long we would be there. We had about a few months till our furlough time in the States. And then uh, came back to the States and were redirected back to Kajabi. And spent, the, as I said, the next 35 years there. Wow. We enjoyed it. Uh, it was a ministry to medical students and to... Uh, other young students that came our way. We had a, fortunately, we had a nice large house because we had a nice large family, mm-hmm. but we also had medical students and other students staying with us. And that was a, that was a blessing. That mm. was a gift from God in many ways. Mm. 1993, I had a strange call from uh, David Stevens. I'm not sure if you know him. He used to be the head of World Medical Missions. Mm-hmm. And David, we were at the coast on vacation, and David said, wondered if you'd be interested in being our medical director for our Samaritan's Purse team in Mogadishu. And I said, well, I'd have to talk to the hospital director. And he says, I've already talked to him and got permission. (laughs) I said, well, maybe I should talk to my wife and family. Mm. So I went back to the room and talked to Millie. We were in a hotel at the coast, first hotel we'd ever stayed in at the coast. So it was... It was different, and that was the only reason they could call me. We didn't have cell phones, and we right. didn't, but uh, we went. I went and talked to Millie and got her permission. Wise idea if you're <laughs> a husband. Mm-hmm. And then I went that evening after we had dinner, uh, went out with the twins who were the only kids left at home besides Joshua who had just come into our lives. Mm. And... Uh, said to the twins, this is the opportunity to go for about three months to Mogadishu. John looked at me and said, Dad, you've got to go. This is what we've been praying about. Hmm. So that was the first DART team. Dick is a very accomplished surgeon, and he's been given many awards, presentations, and honors of his work overseas. And he's the co-founder of Bethany Kids, which is a relief and rehabilitation center at Kajabi Hospital. 
He served on several disaster assistance response teams with Samaritan's Purse, and he continues to travel to Africa to this day. Millie wore many hats. First of all, a a wonderful wife and prayer warrior for her husband, Dick. She raised several children. She taught math and French at the Rift Valley Academy. She hosted so many house guests and Bible studies over the years, and she sought the Lord in everything that she did. And Millie chose joy. She never allowed frustration to become her disability. It has been said that Millie was just as much a part of Dick's work behind the scenes, and that is evident in the way that she helps him recall his years of service and ministry over the years. So that's what I just want people to hear, that serving the Lord doesn't come easy. The doors aren't going to fly open. You know, there will be obstacles and times where you think, this is too much. I want to go home. Um, But if it's of the Lord, He will speak to both of your hearts. And I love how he did that over the time. So when you, this is the first time, I mean, I know that the the hospital that you partnered with, you know, World Medical Mission worked with. So you right. knew of Samaritan's Purse, but this was your first dart experience with Samaritan's Purse. Um, did the family go with you? Did you go by yourself? Can you talk to me about those three months in that dangerous part of the world? The family did not go with mm-hmm. us. They were in school. Millie was teaching mm-hmm. at the time. <clears throat> but it wouldn't have been a good place for mm-hmm. them to go anyhow. So we we could not talk to them on the radio, but we could talk at them on the radio. Hmm. So at, oftentimes during a week, we could get on the radio and talk about everything is going fine, et cetera, et cetera, but they couldn't respond. That later also was true in, in Sudan. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could weren't supposed to talk on the radio, but we managed to talk. Uh, Dr. Cooper, how to to put a shunt in. Mm. He'd seen one before, but needed a little direction. Mm. <clears throat> so, Millie, what was it like? Um, I mean, obviously, the Lord tenderly spoke to you early on, I'm sure, all throughout. Um, and I want to come back to raising kids on the mission field. But here he goes to a, a war zone, you know, and you're not able to talk to him. What was that like, uh, allowing him to go? Well, I had the twins to pray with me, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the three of us could pray for his mm-hmm. safety, but most of all, that the Lord really would use him mm-hmm. there. Um, I didn't have fear. Hmm. I, I think it was because of what the Lord had already taught me hmm. about his closeness to me and his desire to change me. I I really I wanted to be more like him. Mm. And he he wanted us to love sacrificially the way he did. Mm. Like it says in Ephesians 5 1. He gave me totally through nothing I was or could do, mm. but he gave me a heart that wanted Dick to serve where people were perishing mm. without the Savior. And I I wanted him to be there, you know, for whatever he could do to represent the Lord Jesus in that situation. I mean, God God worked in me in amazing ways mm-hmm. during special times mm-hmm. um, when he was in Mogadishu, and and then later in '94 when the Genocide broke out in Rwanda. 
Mm-hmm. Our daughter, Bethany, wanted to be there to help. And she talked Dick into going mm-hmm. with her. Mm-hmm. And they went with Samaritan's Purse mm-hmm. to help in Rwanda. And um, she she was still 20 years old. And uh, even people in Kenya would look at me and say, how could you let your daughter go to Rwanda? Mm-hmm. And I looked at them and said, no problem. <laughs> hmm. I mean, I have no fear about that mm-hmm. because he wanted her to do that. Hmm. And so she and and Dick went with her for the first two weeks, and Bethany ended up spending the whole summer in Rwanda and turned 21 in Rwanda during the genocide and worked with the unaccompanied minors who had lost their parents. Mm-hmm. And she had three little babies actually die in her tent mm. that she was caring for just to love them mm-hmm. overnight. You know? mm-hmm. she, and then she and another fellow um, from the Harvard Medical School went with her. And so the two of them um, stayed in Kigali to clean up a house there for um, the people with Samaritans for to live mm-hmm. in, where 15 mm-hmm. people had actually been killed there. Mm-hmm. And she and, and Steve, was his name, also cleaned up the, the hospital mm-hmm. so it could reopen to care mm-hmm. for the people. She had a traumatic time, mm-hmm. really, in a sense, it took her a while to just recover, mm-hmm. but it was such a deep experience. And she kept a journal that, um, though I knew she was there and I knew how hard it was for her, just reading her journal just just made me cry. Mm-hmm. But I, I could see how God used that mm-hmm. in her life. It was mm-hmm. then, then when she and Edward... Um, her husband were in Sudan during the bombing. Mm-hmm. I prayed a lot, but I didn't pray out of desperation. Mm. I didn't pray out of fear. Again, it just didn't seem normal to me, mm-hmm. but I had no fear mm-hmm. of their being mm-hmm. in Sudan during the bombing. Mm-hmm. It was <laughs> That's because I think when you're in the center of the Lord's will, you're you're no you know you're safe in yeah. in the center of the Lord's will, you know. And when you're being obedient, and that seems like yeah. He gave you that peace and that favor, that even though the circumstances were not easy, um, and I'm glad you shared that because I was going to ask what what it's like raising kids on the mission field, and and how did it produce. Uh, I guess resilience and godliness in them, which we're already seeing, because I love the way that your your twins supported you going to Mogadishu. Of course, this is what we've been praying for. And then Bethany went with you to Rwanda. So obviously it produced character and just a resilience, but it also did the same in you as parents. So maybe can you tell us what it was like raising kids on the mission field? Because I think that's people say, oh, I can't do that to my kids. (laughs) You know, they want to spare them, but actually it sounds like it enhanced and blessed your, your family and your life. Can you maybe share 
and you've shared a little just in the faithfulness, but what was it like on a day-to-day basis? And how did you see, I guess, the opportunities to serve as a family? How did it grow you being on the mission field? When our kids were young, we particularly tried to get them involved in what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And the primary school was much more acceptable to pulling the kids out of school for three or four days and We'd take them up north into a mm. surgical trip. And, uh, well, I, I, I should back up and even say when Bethany was three, we used to put her in the operating room, put a mask on her and let her watch operations. Uh, all our kids believe that all children are born by C-section, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when we moved over to Kenya, I would take one of the boys with me up north frequently. Uh, when I say frequently, three or four two or three times a year. Hmm. And they would see the operations and they would, you know, participate in watching after the kids and things like that. Um, and then later, as as they got older, they would go a little bit more independently. And hmm. Susie, John's twin sister, uh, went up to Tonj in, in Sudan. And that was, that was, uh, that was a, tough place at that time. And mm-hmm. when I first went to Tones, you'd still see human bones on the ground. And that was, that was different. That was different. Um, but each, each of them got their own call. I mm. mean, uh, uh, each of them has a, a unique, I mean, one of, one of our twins is hoping to go back to Kenya to work as a chaplain. Mm. Oh. The other, other tw- his twin sister is married to a pastor of a rescue mission. Hmm. And uh, our oldest son, that is now in Nairobi, is planning next year with, with his family to move to Chad. Wow. So they're, they'll be in Chad. But um, the wonderful thing is when we had to leave the Comoro Islands. He and his wife initially worked in Tanzania and then in Uganda, but then they went back to the Comoro Islands and were there 15 years before moving to Kenya. So even though we weren't allowed to stay in the islands, Mm -hmm. our son and his wife went there and did a marvelous mm. job, I think, training um, people to work in unreached people group situations. Mm. So you did pass that baton. I love that. Yes. Um, and I think I, I read a quote that you wrote about um, making disciples, and I, I I didn't write it down exactly, so I'm probably going to ruin it. Um, you know, y- you want to duplicate yourself, like sharing the gospel for one, but also training. And and I, I think of that with your own children. I mean, look at how each of them are serving the Lord in different capacities. But that was a, a big um, desire for you was to teach and to dis, to make disciples, both spiritually, I mean, most important, but also medically. And you loved watching other doctors be trained and, and multiplied. So I guess... Did somebody help instill that in you while you were young, or, or, or did God teach you that along the way? My mentor helped mm. instill that in me. Mm. He's 104 now. Wow. Lives in, in wow. Illinois. But uh, he was my mentor when mm. I came out as a medical student. Mm. 
he was my mentor for the, the rest of the time and mm. really encouraged me to come to Kajabi mm. and, and work with the people there. And the, the beauty, too, was the medical students that came along. Mm-hmm. And some of them are out in the field now mm-hmm. doing a variety of jobs in different mm-hmm. places. Uh, if you don't reproduce yourself, you leave an empty spot behind. Mm. Mm. And I think that uh, we saw a good place in in Kenya as a as a home for our kids and a stable place for our family. And we saw a method of outreach with them uh, in 1996. Uh, uh, some uh, Calvary Chapel asked me if I would go up to Sudan with them to 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 help out uh, on a summer trip with other volunteers, but no medical volunteers. Hmm. And uh, Bethany was helping them buy medicine because they had no medical people. And then toward the end, they said, "Well, could Bethany go with us too?" And then they said, "Well, she's the only girl. Could her sister go with her too?" Hmm. Hmm. And so in 1996, we had two planes going into northern South Sudan. And uh, uh, I flew in in the first plane with three of our team, expecting my daughters as well as the rest of the team to arrive in a couple of hours. They didn't arrive that day. We had no communication to be sure where they were. And uh, when they arrived uh, the next day, we went to immunizing children and uh, we taught Susie, who had just finished her first year of college as an English major, hmm. how to mix drugs and how to give injections that day. And the next day she went out as the head of an immunization team. So it was, and then Bethany went another direction hmm. and came back with that evening with a little girl hmm. who was 10 months old and weighed eight pounds. And... Uh, very wasted. Her mother was dead. One of her siblings was dead. Her dad was an SPLA fighter. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got it, got uh, Faith into a little bit better medical condition, but we realized that if we left her behind, she'd probably die. So we wound up taking her home and with the father signing a permit that if mm-hmm. she came out, she probably would not come back. Mm-hmm. And uh, we took her home and a month, she doubled her weight. And she slept in my chair in the living room for a month. And mm. uh, then she was adopted to a family in California. Mm. But the the kids were, if, if they had not been happy, we'd have been in trouble. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I, my my surveillance of the qualifications of an elder, if, if they're not happy, I shouldn't be in ministry. Mm. And... Uh, that was the way I felt about it. And when I say happy, I don't mean ha-ha happy, but content that they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Do you? Mm-hmm. So did you pray specifically for their hearts? Yes. You know, to be softened and for the Lord to call them in this calling? Not that the Lord would call them in this calling, but God would call them to what they were supposed mm. to be doing. Yeah, I, I am praying that the grandchildren will go mm-hmm. as missionaries. I, I think there there is no better place to just live in full dependence on mm-hmm. the Lord mm-hmm. than the mission field. 
And I feel that our kids uh, had the environment that kept them from worshiping things of the world, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. idols. Mm-hmm. I think <laughs> I think we had an easier job as parents mm. by being able to raise them in Africa instead of the U.S. Mm-hmm. because we had um, lots of support all around us, mm. the people who were teaching them, the people who were coaching them in sports. They all loved the Lord. Mm-hmm. And we had churches that supported us for um some still, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the churches had groups of people that prayed for her family. Mm-hmm. So our kids had lots of people praying for them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's really crucial here in um, families for the grandparents to take on as their Number one, responsibility to pray for their grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I pray for them all the time. Mm-hmm. I have 18. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I think that's so crucial mm-hmm. to have prayer behind them, especially in this culture. Mm-hmm. I think my job was easy where I lived. Mm-hmm. I I love living in Africa. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, because you were stripped away from so many distractions, too, I'm sure, that we have here. Yeah. Um, so can we talk a little bit about your work with um, children with disabilities? You know, I think that w- you you fell in love, you know, and had a passion to to help help them see their value in Christ. And um, we have a little boy that was born with um, microtia, and he's from China. And I think my heart breaks for for parents in parts of the world that um, disabilities are deemed... uh, A curse. Yes, a curse. And so um, they are either pushed out, um, you know, the... Anyway, I, I guess... So I love the fact that you... You saw their value, and you and you taught people that they are valued. They are created by a creator. So, can you talk to me about what, how the Lord impressed that on your heart, and and the the surgeries and the work that you did there? In about 1982, early 80s at least, uh, we went Millie and I with our twins who were preschool at the time, drove down to a place called Caggiato that had us. Uh, a hostel for disabled children with adjacent schools mm-hmm. that they could attend if they could walk that far, hmm. if they could get there that far. And uh, the nurse there was very clever, and she took us on a tour. She took us to the kitchen and took us to the clinic and on around. And the final one was the preschool. And they opened the door into the preschool, and there were about 30 kids in there, and there were braces and crutches all over the floor. And uh, she showed me this, and these were mostly polio at the time. Mm -hmm. And she took us outside and she looked at me and said, can you help me? Hmm. Now that was not a scientific uh, intellectual thought for me in that I had never even thought about working with disabled kids. Hmm. But I said, surgeons are very proud in some ways, so I couldn't tell her I didn't know 
I'd never seen an operation on a disabled child, but I said, hmm. we'll try. Hmm. And we had, you know, we started. And we started uh, simply. A few years later, we had operated on a thousand cases of polio and done 2,000 operations on those patients. And polio led to club feet, led to burn contractures, led to cleft lips, led to, you know, and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was it was just not that we were that skilled, but there was nobody else in the country hardly doing those operations. Mm -hmm. And so we began and we, we didn't have the means at the time, but uh, various things came along. Various came, things came along and two old ladies from Europe came by one day and wanted to know what we were doing with club feet. And I, or what we were doing with disability and I showed her some numbers and showed how we were growing a bit. She, they thanked me and left. And about two weeks later, I get a letter in the mail saying, here is a half million shillings, which was not 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 as much as it sounds like. Mm -hmm. And uh, whenever you use that up, ask for more. Mm -hmm. And then the Christoffel Blinden mission offered to help through individual aid. And eventually that, I worked myself out of a job as being a general surgeon most of the time and could concentrate on disabled children. And that's the door that's opened the door at the coast of Kenya in mm -hmm. unreached people groups. And that's the door that opened the country I go to that is an unreached people group too. Mm -hmm. And so we do hydrocephalus and spina bifida. Uh, we did, when we started doing hydrocephalus, we were doing three or four a year, maybe. 1997, we did seven shunts for hydrocephalus. In 2010, we did nearly 900 shunts for, mm -hmm. for hydrocephalus. And it, ju it just grew and more people learned how to do it and more people, more children got it done. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, it was it was just fun to see them and then mm -hmm. to see some of these kids come back later and, mm -hmm. and grow into adults. One of them, had, I think I saw when she was a few months old, now she's about 27. Uh, she had spina bifida, couldn't control her urine or her stool mm -hmm. completely and uh, was taught how to do this. She, she'll admit to you today that when you first, she, she was first taught how to do intermittent catheterization, hmm. she would smile and thank us and go outside and throw it in the trash can. Hmm. But then she eventually became a nurse and is now working as a nurse and hmm. learned a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But uh, thankful kids, mm -hmm. thankful kids. I think the neat thing for him actually was the continuing relationship mm -hmm. with their families. Because mm -hmm. it's not like seeing a patient and right. then never seeing them after they are well again. That's true. You just continue seeing them over years. Mm -hmm. and, and build a relationship. And learn to love them. Mm -hmm. And they never get well. I mean, you, it's not like, you know, take this pill and then mm -hmm. you know, two weeks you'll be well. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, this is how we can help you now. There may be other things. Mm -hmm. And one of the the gals that came down from a primitive tribe, uh, we wound up amputating her leg because she had no sensation in her foot and had deep 
sores that went right into the bone and all. And uh, she, after we did her amputation, got her walking, she became the head of our playroom hmm. in the hospital. And then she was taught how to do clean intermittent catheterization. And then she began, and you can see this on the web if you want to, Francisca, she began dating. <laughs> and then she got married. Hmm. Now she has a little boy. So those are the continuities that yes. make you feel like it's worthwhile. Or those that, that recognize you after you haven't seen them for months and months and months. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought her up. I actually read about her and it said she also has shared the gospel and mm -hmm. you know, with over 50 people have come to Christ and now walk because of her. So you think, mm -hmm. yes, now she has a family, a physical family, but spiritually she's made an impact, you know, mm -hmm. and that is someone that the world deemed as you know, cursed or not worthy, not worth your time. And you showed people they do have value. They have worth. You know, God has a purpose for her. And I love that, yeah, you get to see them continuing. She'll be with us in July. Oh, really? And there's a there's a method in which people like this can speak. Yes. That speaks so much louder than what we can mm. say. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, She's special. She's mm, special. That's incredible. That I, I, I'm glad you brought her up. And um, another quote of yours that I loved, you said, I, want, I really want to serve a God of miracles. I want to put my foot into the Jordan before the waters separate. <laughs> when, when did that you know, prayer become on your heart? And um, can you maybe share a couple miracles that you saw God do and provide for? Well, I'm not sure I'd call them miracles in the fine definition, mm. but... Uh, you know, just, uh, yeah, I guess I could, could look at some of those too. I mean, so we had children come in that had hydrocephalus that had been blind usually less than mm -hmm. a month. Mm -hmm. And we, now I can't talk my neurosurgeons into believing me, but we'd put a shunt in them. And within a couple of months, their vision returned to some point. And it was probably just the pressure on the visual source, but when you took that pressure off with those shunts, they came, their sight came back. And I've seen that in about four or five kids. And, and Daisy. Uh, hmm? Daisy. And mm. Daisy was a, a little girl who came in to see me the first time when she was 10 years old. And her mom and dad were both nurses working in a government hospital. And she'd been in the hospital with fever and had been treated for malaria twice and all. And... She'd had her back closed when she was an infant and a shunt put in when she was young. But uh, she collected fluid on the outside of her brain. And uh, when she came, I, I operated on her that day. And I told him, I said, I, I don't think this will make a difference. She had a, a paralysis of her left arm and leg. But if it were my child, this is what I would do. Mm. So they let me put her in and I... Put the shunt, put the put the drain in the drain to the outside, and uh, sat in the operating room writing my orders. And while they were trying to wake her up and all, when they woke her up, she was moving her left side. And uh, I went. I probably ran, but I won't be undignified. I'd probably just walk down to see her mom and told her. I said, I think we've done the right thing. Hmm. Uh, she did uh, die several months later, but uh, 
she, I, when, when they came for, I don't usually do this, but when they came for a body, I went out to the, the morgue area and uh, the grandmother was there. I never met the grandmother before. Her grandmother was kind of a, a lay preacher. Mm-hmm. And uh, she called me over and she says, I want you to know, when Daisy was about four years old, she came to me and said, Grandma, I want to walk. Mm-hmm. And we prayed and she began walking. And she she had an awkward gait, but she was walking. She's a special girl. She's going to be there when we get there. Hmm. What do you, you think that all the little crippled children will be there waiting? They're going to be, they won't be crippled anymore, but they're mm-hmm. going to be there. They're mm-hmm. going to come out and meet me. Mm-hmm. You just wait and see. Hmm. <laughs> That's what I love. Um I know, and I think it was first or second Peter, you know, the, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just think as you're talking, it must be difficult to, to lose patience and to, to watch this. But as a believer and knowing that you sowed eternal, you know, truth, the word of the Lord stands forever. And like mm-hmm. you said, you'll see them one day in, in eternity. So I guess... What has the Lord taught you in that, losing patience and, and knowing that what you do here and physically is important, but spiritually is more important? 2004, we hired a new chaplain. Mm. Her name was Mercy. Mercy mm-hmm. was about 50, 50 at that time. And she would, her, her method of working with the patients was that she'd go and sit on every bed nearly every day and talk to them about Jesus. Talk and to the mom. Talk to the mother mm-hmm. about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, about two years ago, I wrote and I said, Mercy, what can you tell me about your ministry in the last bit? She said, in the last 10 years, we've seen about 38,000 people come to the Lord. Wow. Now, if a lot of people told me that, I'd say, oh, yeah, but not Mercy. This, this is true. Hmm. But not just through her by herself. Mm-hmm. You know, through her and when, when she came and joined our team, she came and said, Dick, could we train some disciplers? And I, I thought I knew what discipler meant, but I wasn't sure. I said, what do you mean by discipler? She said, can we t- talk to them a little bit about disability and about the Lord and how they can help us by going out and visiting patients in their village and things like that? Eventually, Mercy trained 500 disciples mm-hmm. and who were all over the country and would go and follow up patients. Mm-hmm. That is incredible. And I think, and as you mentioned, um, discipling earlier, um, you know, we have a lot of interns coming this summer and Samaritans First. And then obviously, World Medical Mission has the post residency program and, you know, trying to train the next mm-hmm. generation. Mm-hmm. So maybe what would you say to people feeling called? to serve, um, what, obviously the Lord's word kept you in, but did you always have people, mentors, people in your life, books? What kept you staying the course and staying faithful over your many years of ministry? Well, I learned early that you you had to feed yourself spiritually Mm -hmm. to a certain Mm -hmm. point. And that that came through books and tapes and... Mm -hmm. I guess it would be CDs or podcasts mm-hmm, today, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it came through a lot of methods. And that came through prayer. And having visitors come invited 
having people pray for you and your kids and thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what else would you say, honey? We, we did have guests that came that really fed us hmm. spiritually. Um, whenever the school, Rift Valley Academy, mm-hmm. would have Spiritual Emphasis Week, we volunteered to keep the speakers. Hmm. Whenever any people came along, we invited them to our house. Hmm. And we always had 16 beds available for people. Hmm. So we we had multiple guests that hmm. were so rich in teaching. When we came here and people <laughs> said that they take... When missionaries come visiting here, they put them in a hotel. I thought, what a waste. Mm. I mean, these are people who should be speaking into Mm -hmm. our lives and Mm -hmm. to the lives of children, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because our kids benefited Mm -hmm. from having people, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful examples and role models, Mm -hmm. as well as speaking truth. Mm -hmm. It was just great. But just spending time with the Lord daily, Mm. early, first thing. Um, And devotions with our kids. And Mm -hmm. we got into a kind of a silly phase in which we we, we said to the kids, you know, do you have any particular type of prayer time? Said, well, we could have pop-up prayers where you'd have to stand up to pray. Mm -hmm. And we could have uh, uh, Fisherman. fisherman prayers in which we cast out the nest for unreached people. Hmm. And we could have uh, wise, men. wise men's prayers where we get down on our knees and pray together. Hmm. But the kids loved it. And each one of them, you know, there's some beauty in having, well, we had five kids at the time and then the two of us. So everybody had a night each week and uh, hmm. they could uh, choose the type of prayers. And we had a devotional book we would go through. I do love it. And that's why I love you sharing your time. And I, I feel like we've already talked a long time, but we could talk for hours and hours and hours. And I just want to glean from all of your stories and your wisdom. Um, so maybe we can have you back in on another time because I know it's already been an hour. Um, but before we close, I guess maybe do you have a, I'm sure there's many, but a passage of scripture that is your life verse or um, that maybe spoke to you more times than most, or or did you just always get a new word each day? Let me borrow your Bible. Okay, sure. <laughs> Go um, ahead, honey. No. I, I like in Philippians 3, where it says, whatsoever things are mm. gained to me, those things I count as lost for the sake of Christ. Mm-hmm. More than that, I consider all things as lost in view of the surpassing value mm. of knowing Him. I just feel that there is nothing in this world that has any comparison to what we have in Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm getting old, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking of how wonderful heaven's going to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> that's not terribly practical for everybody, maybe. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I I really do think that the the value of having Christ being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, Mm -hmm. but that which is through Him. 
Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he went up on a mountain and sat there. And large crowds came to him, including the, the lame. Those are the ones that had polio. The blind, the crippled, and those unable to speak, and many others. They put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd was amazed when he saw those unable to speak talking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. Now, if it, if it ended there, we'd be in trouble. But it goes on and says, and they gave glory to the God of Israel. And I, th- I think that's what we want to see, not only f- physical healing, but spiritual healing too. Hmm. Millie shared a, a story that really stuck with me about how early on in their ministry, she had to choose joy. And she had to look to the Lord and train her eyes to stay focused on the Lord and not on her circumstances. It stayed with her all throughout their many years of ministry. <laughs> and perhaps um, I will, I'll share how the Lord taught me something really crucial in my life. He, he taught me many things along the way because being in some of the places were extremely hard for me. Um, when we were in the first, the second island we lived on in the Camaro Islands was where I moved when the twins were only two weeks old. And we had a significant number of cloth diapers. And, and we were washing with a ringer washing machine, which is a very old contraption mm-hmm. that uses um, several tubs, and it takes quite a while. Mm-hmm. And I had a young Comorian fellow who was still a teenager helping me. Mm-hmm. This house that we lived in was quite filthy, really. Mm-hmm. It um, it had been occupied by a doctor who loved fowl. And so he had in the kitchen pigeon boxes in the air vents along the top of the ceiling of the house. And these holes in the area just below the roof uh, had boxes and these pigeons roosted in there. But um, the trash from the boxes kind of drifted down into the kitchen, Hmm. even though it wasn't open to the kitchen. And the pigeons were such a mess. And we moved just after he had moved out. And so um, he hadn't had time to prepare a place for Mm. all his pigeons. Mm. And so they were still there with us. Mm. And so after we washed in the Fringer washing machine, we usually would just take the water and dump it on the back porch to clear off all the pigeon droppings. And I I was so disgusted with the situation in the kitchen that it it made me very unhappy just being there Mm -hmm. because I knew I wanted a place that was clean. Um, We had five kids then, Uh, The twins, two weeks old, as I said, and the oldest one was eight. 
eight, seven, four in two weeks. Mm. And so <laughs> I just wanted it clean, and it was just impossible because mm-hmm. of the situation. And it was dusty, too. And in the yard, there were lots of chickens, and so no grass grew. It was just dirt. Mm. So this young man that was helping me, um, a Comorian Muslim man, he um, hung up all the diapers on mm. a clothesline mm. outside. And I, I looked out just as the line broke and all the diapers went in the dirt. So I just kind of cracked. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it was like the last straw mm-hmm. on, on the camel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I was just so distraught. So I, I didn't even stop to think. I, I just um, ran down to the hospital, which was at the base of the hill that our house was on. Hmm. So I lifted up my long skirts <laughs> and, and ran as fast as I could. But when I got there, uh, Dick was not available because he was operating. Yes. And I couldn't tell him that it would be impossible for me to live in that place. Mm. I just couldn't. I wasn't strong enough. I was way too weak. And I, I couldn't live there. And by this time, I'd, I'd probably been there maybe a month at mm-hmm. most, mm-hmm. not very long. But I, I just couldn't take any more. And I was just so broken. So I climbed back up the hill. I asked the older um, boys to, to watch the babies. And I went off by myself and my Bible. Mm. And I started looking and praying. And I was asking God, what could I do? I, I couldn't live there. Hmm. And yet he wanted us there. Mm-hmm. And so as I was reading, I I came to come unto me, all mm-hmm. you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Mm-hmm. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle. Mm-hmm. And I will give you rest for your souls. He put the rest and the yoke together. He said, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hmm. And that stuck with me. And then I picked up a book and um, I came to a chapter that discussed these verses. And it talked about Jesus had been a carpenter in the carpentry shop before he started his public ministry. Mm-hmm. And he um, made yokes hmm. for oxen, but he made them hmm. to fit them. They were custom-made, so they wouldn't rub wrong, they wouldn't irritate, they wouldn't irk the, the ox. And because it fit them, they could work and not be irritated. Hmm. And I I saw myself with a yoke. And I I felt like God has given me a yoke that 
fits me. Mm-hmm. And he is in the yoke with me. Because mm-hmm. normally an older one is helping a younger one learn. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I needed lots of teaching. Mm-hmm. So because he showed me that, I was so changed. Mm. It, it transformed me because my perspective became the fact that he was concerned that my yoke didn't irritate me, but it would fit me, but it would make me close to him. Mm-hmm. And I was so excited about that. And then when tick, uh, tick typhus, because there were ticks everywhere, mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't even disturbed. Mm-hmm. I prayed. I, I prayed for him. I wanted him to be made well. And it, it took a while. But my perspective on everything, everything that was brought into my life, I could see it then as part of the yoke that God had mm-hmm. prepared for me. And so it, it made a huge difference in my life from then on. Mm. And that's, uh, that's the one key thing in my life that has made all the difference mm. in the world. Mm-hmm. Because I saw, I saw God's purpose for me differently. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope that you were convicted and challenged as you heard from Dick and Millie. I wasn't even able to scratch the surface of their testimony and their story. So hopefully we'll have them back on on the podcast. But if you want to hear more, Dick has a book called Take Two Hearts. And you can order on, on Amazon and hear more about their story. And I know I've been just reading through it and been even more challenged. And I love how at the end of the book, he has some suggestions. You know, if you feel stirred to, to serve overseas, um, he says that the, the word missionary is defined as sent one. And as Christians, you know, we all know that we're all supposed to be sent. You know, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 is for all of us. And it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so I love that reminder, you know, so whatever you are doing, whatever God has called you to do, remember that He is with you always. And as Millie reminded us in her story, He, he asks us to come. Come to Him, take upon His yoke, and we can only do our ministry with Him. And so I wanna close with a motto that he shares. It's a Joytown motto, and it says, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do, and what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. So I hope that hearing their story and hearing this will remind you that we can't do everything, but we can do something. We each have a part to do in the kingdom of God. And so be encouraged and challenged in whatever He's called you to do. And I hope that you'll just seek Him for what He has for you today. Thanks again for tuning in and God bless you.